Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation with Jory Finkel, director of the new documentary Artist and Mother, which explores the seemingly mutually incompatible roles of being at once a working artist and also a mother. This was a conversation that Kate Wolf, LARB's editor-at-large, and and I had with Jory Finkel. So what I loved about this documentary is that it really draws out the way in which, and I know this sounds very simple to people on the inside, or certainly to people who are not from my perspective, but it was great to see kind of how gendered the art world is and how the ways in which on the one hand, the art world would seem to be like, well, anybody can make anything. It's kind of freeform and open. But actually, motherhood turns out to be one of those conversations and topics that you really just can't have or that people are quite resistant to having. I think I've seen a lot of that actually firsthand from friends Mm. who have become mothers in the recent past and have tried to maintain their artistic practice. And Jory Finkel really points out a real failing on the part of the art world to support moms, to support moms and and figure out a way to support mothers making art. Essentially, it's very simple, Mm -hmm. but and it sounds it, but you know, it's it's And mothers making art about being mothers. Yes. Yeah. Right. But even the sort of the smallest things where residencies, let's say, don't accept Mm -hmm. a person with a child. They don't accept a person with a partner. Right, you have to go alone. You mm-hmm. are immediately shut out of that kind of productive space. Yeah, so there are a lot of different ways in which motherhood is really shunned from the from the space of um, creative expression and creative production. Here's one way that I've been thinking about this problem recently. Is I saw that movie Hereditary, which is horrifying, mm-hmm. absolutely horrifying. And my grand theory of the movie is that it's actually really just about the impossibility of being a mother and an artist at the same time. That is so smart. I I love this movie. I love Hereditary. I went to see it twice. It's and great. You are absolutely right because she is trying to hold it together, and her art is. I don't want to spoil it, but it like turns into a total mess, and yeah. she's constantly getting pressure from a gallery who's on the one hand like, "Sorry about your motherly grief." losing your mother and spoiler alert your child but also hey when can you have that stuff to us yeah that is so brilliant okay i'm gonna stop it right now we're gonna go to the interview because that is the most brilliant thing i've heard about this movie wait can i do one more thing which is imagine the sequel where the gallery is hearing the news and they're like what happened (laughs) she can't get us the art yeah that would be what they would say wait she can't do what yeah anyways all right let's get to this interview let's do it We're excited to have Jory Finkel in the studio with us today. Jory is an arts writer for the New York Times and has been chronicling for the Times and the art newspaper the wildness of the L.A. art world since its dramatic expansion at the beginning of the new millennium. She's here today to talk to us about her first film, the documentary Artist and Mother. The film challenges the conventional wisdom in contemporary art circles, at least, that one can't be a good artist and a good mother at the same time. She explores this question through interviews with four California-based artists who have made motherhood a central part of their art and practice. Welcome to the show, Jory. Thanks for having me here. 
Okay, so just to open it up, in the film, you you kind of address the question that motherhood is the last taboo in contemporary art, right? The last thing that can't be represented, that people don't seem to want to see represented. So can you explain kind of what you mean by that and where that taboo quality comes from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good place to start, right at the heart of it. Um, I actually have a friend in New York who just saw the film for the first time because mm. it's streaming on KCET. And he said, so, so you're saying that if a woman got hooked on heroin and it interfered with her ability to work for, say, six months intensely, and then after that, for a couple of years, it changed the way she thought and worked, and then she was able to kick the habit and kind of get back to work in a really serious way and come out with a new show that the art world might go crazy for it. You know, on the other hand, if you have a mother who has changed her working habits for a couple of years and then wants to make artwork that deals with motherhood, how would that be received in the art world? And the answer is not so well. That generally, this is the topic that's not considered sexy. This is the topic that's not considered central to the art market. And that's really what what we're getting at here is that you think of contemporary art as this very progressive place because it's filled with so many left-leaning liberal types. But I think because of the money coursing through the art market, there are a lot of really conservative values. And so motherhood is one of these things that just doesn't get taken seriously in the contemporary art world. And I was wondering about why this was, and I think part of it is that contemporary art has, and, and art, the history of art in general, has a lot of focus, especially as we look back, has a lot of focus on the new. The new, the avant-garde, transgressive, edgy, and of course, you know, being a parent, being a mother is not thought of as a transgressive act. It's thought of as, as normcore as you can get, basically. So I don't think, I think that's also one reason it's taboo is because it's so normal, so average. Do you think that's true? I do. I do. I also have a pet theory, um, you know, and this is a theory, can't be proven, but I think that with contemporary art in particular, we're afraid, kind of as a culture, we have a fair amount of anxiety about its value, that we're not so sure it's actually meaningful, serious, substantial, durable, We're afraid, in fact, that it's a little too close to decoration or that it's a luxury good in some ways. And what do you do when you have anxiety? You try to counteract it with the most macho thing you can find. You know, so think about about your traditional images of a powerful artist. When you think of the words powerful artist, who do you think of? Do you think of a woman? Or do you think of Jackson Pollock flinging his paint on the canvas? Or Picasso, you know kind of ripping through an image in such record time, this kind of vigorous, muscular, um, virile work. And I think one of the reasons that work is still, pro- you know, I, this this is all undercurrent in the art world. Um, people don't talk about this openly, but I, I think to some degree we have, you know, a next generation of artists kind of continuing in that style, continuing in that pattern, you know, whether it's Jordan Wolfson, who makes the most violent work you can imagine. For the Whitney Biennial, he bashed in a stranger's skull. Yes, it was an animatronic robot, but it didn't look like that. It looked like a person laying on the sidewalk and he had a baseball bat and he was bashing it. And so we have these kind of next generation heirs where there's so much virility and 
I, so I think one of the reasons why is because fundamentally, uh, we are still not sure about the status of art in our society. And so we don't want it to seem too feminine. We don't want it to seem too optional. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that there could almost be nothing more conventional and conservative than masculine violence, right? So like <laughs> right. this this kind of exhibit that you're talking about, which is so it's transgressive, you know, because, oh my God, it's violence. We've said, I've never seen a war movie before in my life, you know, like that, or I've never seen American History X, right? Like these, that itself is like a kind of tired old trope, right? So, and it also totally resist the idea that there is, violence may not be the right word, but like um, pain that is involved in motherhood, right? right? right, right. There's like, like there are all those narratives there. But so I'm wondering if, does it get discounted precisely because it it is uniquely feminine? Right. I tend to think that the sexism we find in the art world and in the larger world that's directed to mothers is just an exaggeration and exacerbation of of sexism more generally. Mm, sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the article. Catherine Goldstein, I don't know if you saw this, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times a few weeks ago called The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias at Work about precisely this thing, how we as a society are don't tolerate sexism in the workplace as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. But some people think it's okay to say, yeah, I don't want to hire her because she's six months pregnant and she's going to have a lot of kids. And so it was about how some of the persisting sexism gets focused on mothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know, something I thought was so interesting in the in the documentary is that if you actually look at the history of art, I couldn't, you know, believe this when I when it's pointed out in the documentary, but it's kind of mind-blowing. The most iconic image in art is a mother and child. Right. It's just shocking. It's shocking right. when you realize that. So how is it possible that at the core of art history the mother and child is the most representative image that exists, and yet ideas of images of, of mothers, or maybe more explicitly in this case, made by mothers, could be, you know, such a touchy subject. And it's both. It's that, yeah, the theme of motherhood kind of disappears. The topic of motherhood disappears. When I was preparing for the documentary, I went back to all of my old college textbooks, all the Art History 101 books I could find, looking at what themes are presented. Um, because they do, they are organ. These books are organized topically. You know, when you get to the 19th century, you get the theme of the invention of photography and how it impacts painting, or you get World War One and the avant garde or later on you'll get like the themes like consumer culture and pop art. Right. Motherhood is not a theme in art history textbooks. Not a single one that I could find. Not when you get to feminism, and not before it in the Renaissance, really where it was mainly religious imagery. So it was seen right. in a different context. Right. How does, I, I would be interested, kind of how, how does feminist criticism within the art world address the question of motherhood? I mean, has there been writing about that before the, that informed maybe how you were framing the documentary or what's like thinking within like feminist art history and contemporary art circles? I mean, it's appearing here and there and it's appearing in important ways. I think in second wave feminism of the 1970s. We didn't see a lot of that. We didn't see a lot of concern for children or women having children. Which like, makes oh, sense with second wave feminism. And that was right. a rift yeah. within feminism at the time, right? Judy Chicago is kind of goes on record saying she would never have children because she doesn't want to be a mother. She wants to be an artist. So right. even within feminist critique, you know, that's, the mother is sidelined. 
Yeah. I mean, I can tell you one great essay that I read on this subject. It comes from one of the experts we used in the film, Helen Molesworth, who was a curator, chief curator of MOCA at the Mm -hmm. time that we interviewed her. She gives amazing walkthroughs of her exhibitions. It's, It's... a kind of performance art. She's that good at it. You know, mm-hmm. she'll walk you and talk you through an exhibition she's organized and make you feel like you're right there in the studio with the artists, with the ideas, with, you know, everything that's juicy. And she gave this incredible walkthrough for the show that she did at MOCA on Ana Maria Meolina's work, the Brazilian sculptor, installation artist. Mm. The walkthrough was a lot about motherhood. It was about, you know, you get these big tables, and we show this in the film as well, big tables filled with unfired clay shapes that look like pasta or little cookies. And it's a kind of serial art or repetitive art. And Helen reads it as an art about the tediousness of getting food on the table every day. (laughs) You know, she's like, can you imagine? She's not a mother herself. Can you imagine having to get food on the table three times a day? And I said, oh, no, no, add the snacks in, you know, five (laughs) times a day. Um, And so this is her read of Anna Maria Melina's work. And I thought, oh, this is so wonderful. But of course, this is what gets left out of her catalog essay. And then to my delight, I buy the catalog, get the catalog, read her essay. And she actually wrote an essay about motherhood in Ana Maria Meolina, which is what inspired us to bring her into this film as one of our five experts. Well, I mean, something that this makes me think of is that scene in Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. I don't know if you've read that book, but that the scene between, um, that sort of stars Rosalind Krauss as this aggressive art critic, right? And uh, I taught the book and now I can't remember the photographer who is, it's a scene where a photographer is presenting her work. And so she's presenting this new work of, uh, this work of photography that she had recently made. And it's photographs of herself and her son in the bath, her son having a breakfast in the morning. And Rosalind Krauss, after the presentation, you know, she sits quietly and politely through a presentation, but then just rips into it and sees it as boring, unimportant, lazy, sentimental, stupid, sentimental work, right? right? Yeah. But But there was something, something about Maggie Nelson taking that scene and, you know, repurposing it for the other side that at least made me think, okay, the tide does seem to be turning a little bit, right? That Rosalind Krauss is no longer the dominant voice here. That's one thing we're trying to do with this film is to show how these four women that we really feature in depth, we go into their studios, we go into their lives, into their kitchens a little bit how transgressive they are in a way. Mm. Not only did I get to cross over as a journalist in this project in terms of helping to make a documentary, but I also ended up writing some of the marketing copy, um, which is always fun. But, you know, at one point I had a line in there about, you know, four artists who dare to make motherhood a part of their work Mm, because mm. I really wanted to highlight the fact that this, there is something transgressive for them. We also chose the most talented artists we could find in Southern California, which is a big pool, um, since we're making this for a Southern California TV station. Oh, well, you, you maybe tell you us? tell us, yeah, yeah who yeah. they are. Um, so the artists that we feature are Rebecca Campbell, Andrea Chung, Tanya Aganiga, and Kenyatta A.C. Hinkle. And they have very wildly diverse practices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they use motherhood in very different ways. So, you know, we wanted to make it really clear motherhood is not one thing and these artists are not doing the same thing. There's no genre of mother art we're exploring. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. 
We've been speaking with Jory Finkel, director of Artist and Mother. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We are going to have a book recommendation from our own Eric Newman today. Eric is the gender and sexuality editor at the Elle Review of Books. Eric, what book are you going to recommend? Okay, so this is an oldie but goodie. Okay. And also it has a contemporary twist. So I am recommending Nella Larson's 1929 novel, Passing. You've read Passing. I have. Yeah. I think it's a novel that outside of academia, I'm constantly shocked by how many people have not read it. For example, many of the people in my family who are themselves voracious readers When I recommended it to them, they all loved it, but it was the first time that they'd ever even heard of Nella Larson. Yeah. But she's a mainstay of kind of many African-American and American lit syllabi, so it's one of those things that's like known in a particular group but not elsewhere, which is why I'm always, always recommending it. For those who don't know what it's about, it's a fantastic story about racial passing in the early 20th century. It concerns two women who were childhood friends, uh, the kind of conservative Claire Kendry, both of whom are African-American, Claire Kendry, who passes for white, and her childhood friend, Irene Redfield, who passes on occasion, but lives as a black woman, whereas Claire lives with an incredibly racist husband who is white, and she passes for white. And it's the story of their kind of contentious relationship with one another that comes to a dramatic head. It's also sort of a queer relationship. Yes. Right, right? Uh, there's there's some kind of love between them that is romantic in some sense or like obsessive. Yeah, you have to be careful about it because it you're absolutely right Dea that it is queer and criticism has focused a lot on the kind of sensuousness of the gaze between both women. Uh, that's G A Z for those of you playing along at home. Um, not G A Y S. <laughs> so there's there's that element to it. It also, you know, many people have said that it's like the passing can be both racial passing, but also sexual passing. So there's that famous Judith Butler. This is increasingly becoming irrelevant, but that (laughs) Judith Butler essay kind of passing, but for what, right? Mm -hmm. So those tensions in it. I mean, I love this novel. I've written about it a bunch of different times. I just can never get enough of it. So I always want to recommend it. And I'm recommending it specifically because there has been an announcement that there will be a film adaptation of Passing, which is super exciting. And to my knowledge, there has never been an adaptation of this novel. It'll be directed by Rebecca Hall, who is that actress. She played Vicky and Vicky Vicky Christina Barcelona. Um, She was also in a movie that I think nobody except for myself and Dan may have seen called Transcendence. True. Um, Only you guys. Yeah, only us. And it's starring Tessa Thompson, who is an actress that I first became familiar with in the TV series Westworld, um, who's going to be that kind of careful and conservative Irene Redfield. And then Ruth Nega who is an Academy Award-nominated actress. Um, She's beautiful. She's gorgeous, and she will be playing the seductive and daring Claire Kendry. So really, really looking forward to that. Eric, this sounds great. And I should stress, it really is a very... it's a fun book. I mean, it's it's very interesting. It raises a lot of interesting issues, but it's also sort of dramatic and melodramatic at points. It's also a perfectly crafted book. Yes. It's a novel. It's very, very short. I think it's almost kind of more like novella length. It's yeah. about, depending on the edition, it runs anywhere from like 77 pages to kind of 125 or something. But it is beautiful, precise, economical, and 
definitely lasting impact. Okay. What is the title of the book again and the author? It's Nella Larson's Passing. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You are listening to the LAR Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jory Finkel, director of Artist and Mother. bit just the process of how you worked on the documentary, like how you came to work on the documentary, what your role was in it, and kind of what that was like working in a very different medium for somebody who's primarily print-based, sure. right, with some radio. Yeah, right, 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 right. No, I'm a print journalist, um, and I loved this experience because KCET put together the most amazing team of mothers, <laughs> of filmmaker mothers um, for this particular project. The filmmakers I want to give a call out to are Kate Trumbull-Laval and Joanna Sokolowski. And so I came to KCET with the idea. I had been introduced to the creative director there. He invited me to bring some ideas to him because he knew of my role in the art world here. All of my ideas happened to focus on women artists. It's where my head has been. And this was the idea that got under his skin because it was something, you know, we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Maybe you could just mention, you focus on those artists and then you also have other examples of important artists who are mothers and who have had that as a subject of their work in art history. Maybe you could just talk about a couple other examples of powerful art that sure. features mothers. Yeah, well, what we tried to do in the film is kind of interspersed with our four portraits of artists, we wanted to set up some of the issues that face artists when they become pregnant or become mothers. And then we also wanted to do, and this was so much fun to do, a kind of breezy history of motherhood in art. How does the theme play out in the Renaissance in the hands of men, primarily, overwhelmingly? And then what happens in the 20th century when artists who are mothers themselves begin to make work? dealing with this topic. Um, one of the most interesting things to think about is that almost all of these artists get labeled as eccentric really, really fast. So if you think about an artist like Louise Bourgeois or Alice Neal, these are really powerful artists. Ruth Asawa, these are artists who are pretty securely placed in the canon of art history now, but not through the lens of motherhood. Mm. I think if you go into a museum, sometimes the education department will look at motherhood and not the curatorial department. Right. But just to clarify, just, you know, some of the artists in the 20th century, when they focus on motherhood, they get seen as eccentric. It, it, there's no context for it. Right. I wanted to ask you, are you a mother? Yes, I am. Was there a way in which you dealt with this kind of art before you yourself became a mother? Was there a way in which becoming a mother changed how you understood it? I think it opened my eyes. Mm -hmm. I think becoming a mother made me more aware of this kind of art. It also made me more of a feminist in a way, like an open, I'm embracing it now. I have two boys. Jonah is eight years old and Nate is three. And when at the time I was pregnant with Jonah, a number of curators and artists I knew in Los Angeles were also young mothers or older mothers, as the case may be. But we were, we were all having kids around the same time, and it became a part of our daily conversations with each other. We talked about how do you carve out time for your own writing, in my case, or art making? How can these kids 
feed your creativity when not totally disrupting and destroying it. You know, so this kind of classic conversation, we're having this conversation. And my first thought was actually to do a great big panel about it, Mm -hmm. um, maybe at the Hammer Museum or some very central place in L.A., I thought it was interesting. I approached some of my friends about it, and two of them right away said, we're on board, and two of them said, not a chance. And these are, again, women Mm. artists who are mothers who are having the conversation over play dates, over studio visits, in cafes, but they don't want to have the conversation publicly. Not in public, And uh, did they explain explain their reasoning to you, or did you sort of just deduce what it was? Yeah, Uh, one of them didn't explain, and one of them said it pretty explicitly. She didn't want this part of her life, a big part of her life, to eclipse her art in the kind of public consciousness. There's a way in which that, because I, when I hear from um, both my my mother's generation, so women that are not artists but are, say, like, um, top in their field, one of the things that I often would hear is that, well, once I had kids, for example, specifically lawyers, nobody would ask me about my children. Like, nobody wants to even know about that part of your life. That's something else. So I'm interested in how this thing that you're exploring in the art world is actually something that we might think is unique here, but it's not at all. Um, The other thing that I find interesting is this change that you were talking about in terms of thinking about children and the experience of motherhood as being an asset to one's art practice, whereas normally, and this is true also in conversations that I've had with artists and writers who are new mothers, they'll either say, well, it makes you really efficient because, you know, you only have so many hours in the day, or, oh my God, it's such a drain. I sometimes just sit on top of like the, um, this was years ago, I had a, a woman that was telling me like, you know, I just sit on top of the dryer and that's when I write my poems. Um, But in those cases, the child is seen as a detriment to art practice. So kind of how were you talking about the child as an addition or an asset to art practice? So that's the amazing thing that the four artists we focus on really brought to the film because they have, one, they've all been very open about their being mothers. They've kind of lived their motherhood out loud, as one of the artists put it. And then two, they've all found ways that it nourished, replenished, fed their work. Um, And very specific examples to give you, Tanya Aganiga and Andrea Chung both talk in the film about their postpartum depression. And they both used kind of part of their studio practice, some studio technique. They both used art making as one tool to pull themselves out of it. That Andrea Chung said she used to make photographs of her son every day in a very methodical, kind of ritualistic way to remind herself that she's a mother now as a way of of kind of confronting this new identity. Something that I was also curious about um, with the movie and with with your own work is you write for the New York Times, you but you live on the West Coast. I don't want to set up a false dynamic here, but... There does especially seem to be something between the severity of the East Coast, and certainly Maggie Nelson does that in the book too, where Rosalind Krauss is this, you know, severe New Yorker, and the kind of looseness of the West Coast, that the West Coast allows for a little bit more room, a little bit more sort of playing with practice, and the East Coast just doesn't do that. Is that something that you have found we in your own writing? We see that. Well, we see that in the art market because the art market is so concentrated in New York still and that we don't have the same prices for the most part. We don't have the biggest galleries here. 
Um, we're getting bigger and bigger galleries every year, but still. So, so there is some different. I mean, artists who come to LA will still tell me they come to LA for space and they don't just mean a little garden in the back of their yard. They actually mean some headspace to get away from some more traditional or hierarchical notions of how they should do what they do. Did you find when you had a child or your first child that people, did you ever feel like, oh, I shouldn't be talking about this or this is kind of conspicuous that I'm pregnant and I'm here at this artist studio and I feel weird about it? Was that just the... I'm pretty old school in a way. Uh I kept my kids out of the conversation. I kept them out of my writing. I built my professional identity over the course of 20 years and wanted to keep it that way. And and how about, you know, how long did you take off when you first had a child or did you take off a few weeks or a month or? Maybe two months uh-huh. when I had Jonah and then I was offered a staff job at the LA Times and I figured that's the only staff job in this city doing what I did, do, doing what I do as an art reporter. So I took it, but I did put it off a few more months. So I didn't okay. take it until he was six months old. And then with Nate, I took off two or three months. Mm -hmm. Um, What I didn't tell my editors in New York when I was pregnant the second time. Oh, um, you didn't Until I was maybe eight months pregnant. (laughs) And I was going to visit Ai Weiwei's installation on Alcatraz. And I realized that I might not be able to fly or something crazy (laughs) because I was that pregnant. So you had to finally tell them. Uh Uh Something that I was also wondering was, have you given thought to if there's been any movement in terms of fatherhood in art? Right, because that is something not I, I truly I think invisible invisible most of the time. Yeah. I I'm, I'm not sure that I can think of any uh, artist who deals with being a father explicitly in their artwork. Maybe and maybe I'm just drawing a blank at the moment, but it comes up here and there. Yeah, it comes up here and there. I mean, as a journalist, I always ask the question of if you have kids. I ask the question of how having kids has changed your practice, if at all. And I think the answers I get from the dads are a little different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like Shepard Fairey doesn't climb ladders in the middle of the night in quite the same way anymore. He doesn't want to get arrested, I think, Uh because because of his kids at home. Um, (laughs) Where I'm seeing more with certainly the women in this documentary, but more women artists will acknowledge the ways in which their work has swerved at least a little. I mean, even artists who don't make work about motherhood um, there's an artist, Tala Madani, who is a great Los Angeles painter who was in the Whitney Biennial last year. And I was interviewing her before the Whitney and asked her if having a one-year-old at home changed her work at all. And and she started describing her daughter's touch. She said, you know how babies have the lightest touch? And I kind of had to nod along because my kids had like death grips from you know, <laughs> two weeks old. But I'm like, sure, sure. You know, and she's like, well, I started experimenting with what it would mean to have the lightest touch in my paintings. These are paintings that have nothing to do with motherhood. They have to do with like the They have to do with patriarchy, yeah, exactly. actually. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> they have to do with the opposite. But the idea that it, it could influence her technique in this small way. Um, and then there's an artist here um, I'm friendly with, Analia Saban, who had her first big show in LA uh, last summer with a one-year-old at home and has a baby and a major exhibition coming up this fall. Oh. You know, so, so we're seeing more and more of it, whether the artists make motherhood explicit in their work or not. Okay, and just to kind of wrap this all up, um, can you tell us anything that surprised you during the process of making this documentary and then what you hope viewers will take from it? Yeah, good question. 
I would have to say the one thing that surprised me the most, because we went in with this focus on motherhood. But in choosing and in choosing the artists, we wanted four really, really strong artists. Three of them are women of color. And so racial issues come up in this film, I think, in a really organic and interesting way. Great. Well, it's a great documentary. And how long will it be on KCT? It airs on KCT every few months. Okay. But it's on the KCT website streaming now. And and, and until infinitum. Yeah. Great. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, check that out on KCET.org. Thank you guys so much. Thanks Thanks so much, Jory. We've been speaking with Jory Finkel, director of Artist and Mother. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 